Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones, every friend, to look inside their hearts and understand that I. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm so glad you could join us today. We're going to have a fabulous show. We have two guests with us today. The first half of the show, we're going to be talking with um, Susan Scarf, and she is the author of Dementia, The Journey Ahead. In the second half of the show, we're going to be uh, speaking with Mark or uh, Bob DeMarco from the Alzheimer's Reading Room. And so I hope you can stay with us for the whole show. If not, all episodes, of course, are archived, and you can always go back and listen uh, to the shows at a later time as well. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm the founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, which has a resource website, uh, the radio, the blog, um, webinar series. I'm a speaker and trainer, and I'm all about shifting our dementia care culture due to my own personal journey with my mother and her memory loss of over 30 years now. So our goal here really is to raise awareness and give hope and share the real everyday life stories of living with dementia. Our hope is to teach people to live um, with the disease, not as it. And we want to give voice to those afflicted with memory loss as well as their care partners, empowering everyone to live purpose-filled lives together. Our channel expert is Rick Phelps, and he has early onset, which is known as EOAD. And I'm not sure if Rick is going to be able to make the show today or not, but if he pops in, I will definitely pull him in. For those of you that aren't familiar with Rick, Rick is the founder of Memory People on Facebook, which is a closed support group for people with early memory loss, as well as their care partners, both family and professionals, and advocates, and people who just are interested in learning more about dementia and Alzheimer's disease. So if you haven't checked them out, I highly encourage you to do that. And all you have to do is type in memory people on your search bar when you're in Facebook and ask to join the group. Please know that we are very collaborative here, and we would really appreciate your help as well in terms of spreading the word about Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. And you can help with um, being part of this collaborative effort just by liking us on Facebook. Um, You can tweet about us if you have a Twitter account. You can email this. Uh, You can actually embed these episodes into your website, um, add them to your newsletters, whatever. Our goal is just to get information out to everyone there. We also encourage people to join the conversation, and you can do that in a couple of ways. If you signed in using Facebook um, on on Blog Talk Radio, you'll be able to use the chat box and you can ask questions or post comments. But you can also call in live to the show. And that number is 714 
714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757. And then just push 1 and you'll go ahead and get into my, my queue and um, I'll pull you into the conversation as soon as possible. So let's go ahead and get started with the show because we have a lot to talk about today with our two fantastic guests. Um, Susan Scarf, again, is the author of Dementia, The Journey Ahead. And she wrote this book with her sister, Anne Kaiser Slutner. And um, Anne basically learned about caregiving through, through her sister Susan's um, journey. And Susan basically was an in-home caregiver for her husband, Red, until he passed away December 6th of 2006. Prior to her life as a caregiver, she graduated from Northern Arizona University with a B.S. in Education and Art. And now she's retired and she spends her time between San Diego and Phoenix with family and renewing old friendships and doing a little um, home renovation and just... uh, you know, doing some some work and um, managing a forum that she has for dementia caregivers on Facebook. So welcome, Susan. How are you doing today? Thank you, Lori. Just stunning. Perfect. Wonderful. Well, I love your lifestyle between uh, Arizona and San Diego. That's uh, that's a goal for me down the road, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I couldn't face. do that. Couldn't do that for 15 years, so I'm taking advantage of it now. I I bet. Well, I I want to talk to you on so many different levels, but I always like to start out with, um, you know, your journey definitely personally touched you, given that you were taking uh, care of your husband. Can you just give us a little background on how that crept into your life and how you realized dementia was knocking at your door? Uh, I think initially uh, my first observation he had a uh, MBA. He was a highly educated, uh, type A personality. He was his language skills, uh, using the wrong words, um, forgetting our neighbors' names, and we've been here for like thirty years. Um, getting numerous traffic tickets for parking in places for um, you know what are they called um, uh, handicapped. Uh-huh. Like four or five, getting I was getting the phone calls at work, um, <laughs> my cars. But he, what I didn't realize at the time was that he could not even read that sign. He had no clue because he even did it with me in the car. It's bizarre okay. little things. Initially, I would say starting in the early 90s, he was not diagnosed until 1997. Okay. And to me, that was a huge red light. And then I also had one of his business associates tell me, maybe the late 80s, I think he has Alzheimer's. I said, what? You know, the thought never, it never crossed my mind until these well, things it, started to, pardon? Yeah. How old was he when you started seeing these signs? I would say um, early 60s, late 50s. Okay. Yeah, I would have yep. to say, you know, it wasn't exactly early onset, but early enough. Yeah. You know, and back in the day, you think of that more as uh, somebody uh, elderly. Yeah. And oh, oh, definitely back then. I mean, then. since I'm 61 now and feel like I'm 10, you know, it just didn't compute. Mm-hmm. 
And at the time, no. I, I was in my mid-40s. We were 18 years apart. Okay. Yeah, I can I can definitely understand where you weren't looking for that. Um, given your age, given his age, given the time frame back then, it was looked at as an older person's disease, and that has definitely changed. And we're seeing a, a lot more, uh, you know, with younger people afflicted with this disease and, oh, and, and how 30s. it's affecting families. Mm-hmm. It's yep. just so sad with small children. Yep. Isn't that so right? Why, why did you decide to write the book? Well, it started out initially um, when he was diagnosed in, I believe it was 97. Um, I was beside myself. Our father was a doctor, and so we all know enough just to be dangerous. I knew mm-hmm. what was ahead of me. My husband had no idea. In fact, he was relieved because he thought he was going crazy, or he kind of was, to get some sort of a diagnosis. And so knowing what I knew, immediately I called, uh, because I was very upset, the Alzheimer's Association helpline, and was able to get uh, a referral to a neuropsychologist, a gal, that started to visit the house uh, initially, maybe two times a week. Now, Medicare took care of it, um, really pr- evaluating him and preparing me for what she thought might come next. Well, she recommended that I start keeping a journal, mm-hmm. uh, which I did, because at the time I was angry, resentful, sad, up, you know, the the whole gamut of emotions. Um So it all started with this journal, which I titled, first of all, it was called Lost for Words, and then the angrier I got, it was called uh, Diary of a Cranky Caregiver, (laughs) (laughs) which I was until I got a little more help. And she wanted to read it all along the way because, you know, she missed days throughout the week and didn't know what was going on. She loved it. She said, this is real. You need to do something with this. I still have it. It is different than the book, and probably some of it shouldn't even be uh, published, if you know what I mean. Because it's so honest, I would imagine. Honest. Yeah, venting. You're just venting. Mm -hmm. Everything ugly in your mind. I wanted it on paper, and I didn't want to take it out on him because it's not his fault. Mm-hmm. Which takes a while. It takes a while to get it, to put your, to put yourself in their shoes. Yeah. You know, what the heck is he thinking? I mean, he was brilliant, humorous, witty, my idol. That's so, gonna be so difficult to um, to all watch change before your eyes, and. Um, you know, I, I went through the journey and I still am with my mom, but it wasn't my spouse. And, I, I, you know, there's just so many levels to this disease. I think it's important, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that you did write and you did journal and you, you know, you were talking um, honestly in, in terms of venting. I think that's part of the process. I think it's something yeah. that society makes us feel that we should be ashamed of having those feelings, and, you know, feelings aren't good or bad. They just are. But Mm -hmm. we have to acknowledge them, and we have to be, you know, we have to be honest about them to move through them. We've got to work through them. 
But first you yep. have to admit it. Yep. Admit it to yourself. Exactly. And, you know, my reaction to a lot of what he did, because he was a type A prior to dementia and in dementia, uh, I mm-hmm. eventually did have to medicate him, not into a zombie or anything, but just to calm him down. Mm-hmm. And, um, geez, I forgot what I was going to say in reference to that. It, 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 daily, 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 you never knew what he was going to do, if he was going to run away, if, you know, you just didn't know. And not the not knowing just undid me. Mm-hmm. Undid me, and I ended up getting on something to make it uh, not illegal, to make it uh, just to calm me down. You know, there's a lot of fear there. Is he going to hurt? I wasn't. He wasn't um, violent with me or anything. He was a little pushy once in a while, but you know, just taking a trip to the grocery store, and he's spitting all over the floor, or or tooting and letting everybody know he did it, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Things that are so out of character that you can't predict. You you can't imagine. Yeah. Well, and it's not uncommon, you know, for um, caregivers to need some help in terms of medication or support or, oh, no. you know, whatever it is because the stress levels are so high. Yeah. And um, trying to deal with that. But you that. have to and again, take the step. Yep. You just have to be brave, suck it up, and say, darn it, I need help. This isn't working for me. Yep. Yep. You know, I'm still yep. alive, I'm still breathing, but I, uh, you just have to do it. And that was difficult because I'm stubborn, stubborn and I don't know, have a lot of pride, and I could do it myself. Well, mm-hmm. this didn't work that way. Couldn't. Well, and if you're going to a doctor to get medicated versus um, self-medication, um, you know at least you, you know hopefully there's some other support there besides just uh, just the drugs as well in oh, terms absolutely. of pulling in support because again there there's nothing wrong with um, pulling in that support, but I think a lot of times people are ashamed, they feel that, you know, this is, you know, they're just supposed to be able to handle this, and doggone it, why can't they? And and they get really upset with themselves, or they don't want to admit the feelings that they're having because they, they're they afraid people might think badly of them. And right. it, it all just kind of comes with the process here. Well, and, and the more too embarrassed, embarrassed mm-hmm. of their loved one's behavior. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was never embarrassed. We grew up, my father, um, as I said, was a doctor. He had multiple sclerosis, and we have a disabled brother that's paranoid schizophrenic. And so we were, at least I was, and I think my sister too, we were better prepared in one sense because it has been a lifestyle all of our life. I don't know what we've done to our men. But they've all ended up sick in one, neurological illnesses. Mm -hmm. You know, so especially with my brother, I mean, schizophrenia and dementia are not the same. But actually, at this point, a lot of the meds they're using for seizures and behavior are the same. Mm -hmm. Or both. Yep. So, you know, I know that helped me with my journey a lot. Just expect the unexpected. 
Yeah. How did you find friends and family um, in terms of, of dealing with the illness? Now it sounds like your family is you know, somewhat um, understanding with this. How about neighbors and friends and coworkers? So? Um, coworkers at the time, um, I was such very, probably became very difficult to get along with. And at that time, I wasn't really sharing with anybody what was going on in my life. Because every time I came home from work, I never knew if there were going to be strangers in the house, which there were at times. He'd pull them off the street. You know, you're not aware of what's going on because you don't think that they need to be supervised, Mm -hmm. which he did. And so I ended up just quitting. I was creating, um, uh, I wasn't real nice at work. Just agitated and angry and impatient with people. I suppose because of what I was going um, through it on the home front and nobody knew about it. Uh, family lived in a different state. And at the time, my father was barely alive and my mom was still dealing with my brother. I can't ask her to help mm-hmm. because, quite frankly, she was self-medicating herself with alcohol. Mm-hmm. And that's not the route I wanted to take. Okay. Uh, she taught me, she, she, I just loved her to pieces. She passed in a year after Red did. And um, really taught me what not to do, how not to deal with these issues. Um, we tried to get help for her. Wouldn't take it. <clears throat> okay. Thinking she's Friends got it under control. Friends kind of disappeared. Pardon me? Uh, thinking she's got it under control, kind of that whole denial state of I don't need help. Um, which Always. is pretty common. I know, but you know, you know, watching your mom go through this and that, it's and I you know, there wasn't anything I could do. I had my own fish to fry, so to speak. At home, you know, you missed Christmases with him because traveling with him became uh just way, way, way too difficult. Um he was not intentionally, but making everybody miserable and tense and because they weren't around it 24-7 like I was. They weren't as accepting. You know, mm-hmm. they weren't able to go with the flow. He was uh, socially uninhibited, which, you know, that creates all kinds of issues when you're at the store and out to dinner and this and that. And it was better for me not to go over there just for my mother's sake. She didn't need mm-hmm. any more. Okay. You know, my sister was raising babies and married okay. and working. So uh, on the home front here, I had um, maybe actually one friend and her husband that hung in there with me. My okay. friend, my best friend, Gwen. Um, how, how do you socialize? with your friends, and we had hundreds at the time. We were country club members and this and that, and on the tennis court, tournament tennis, parties here, you know, every weekend, and everybody disappeared. Well, that, you know, the Alzheimer's Disease International just came out with their their new stats on stigma, and they've got just a marvelous video that really talks about the isolation. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think society as a whole has not a clue 
on how scared we really are of this disease and how we truly act when when it knocks on our door or on our friend's door um, mm-hmm. and what our reaction is like. Because we're so uncomfortable, it's just easier to ignore it than to address it. And, and that yeah. so has to change. And the only way we're going to do that is by talking about this. Now, earlier um, you had talked a little bit about... Um, your Facebook group, and I'd like I'd like you to share the story um, that you told me, if you don't mind, about uh, just some feedback that you got. It was kind of controversial over some pictures that you had posted, and I think it's important for people to understand the perspective of being in the trenches and what is respectful and what is and what isn't, and mm-hmm. how that is viewed. Um, so would you mind sharing sharing the story, um, that well, particular one? Yeah, I had uh, posted an image of my husband and his caregiver. That morning he had escaped out the back door, and he had his T-shirt on and his, his Depends on, and he was hightailing <laughs> it out into the street because normally what he'd do is try and hitchhike, <coughs> excuse me, from our street, you know, thing for cars. Well, we were both involved in something else, and she ran out and fetched him, and I caught an image of them with the camera walking back um, up the driveway, and they both had this huge grin on their face. He was just tickled pink with himself. You know, like a child, <laughs> I've escaped. Yeah. And a big, it's on there, just a, a big grin. And so I posted this, and... I'm a very visual person. It's I feel as though um, a picture uh, says a thousand words. That's the way that I learn. And I did not find this offensive at all, but apparently a couple of, I think they were young, uh, women, maybe fresh out of school, uh, CNA school, and possibly working in a nursing home with dementia patients. And the two of them were absolutely appalled uh, that I posted the picture saying, you know, it was very, very disrespectful. And how would you feel if, um, you know, somebody posted a picture of you on Facebook in your knickers? And my reply to them was, if I thought it would help somebody, I would do it in a New York minute. And one gal kept on and on for probably the rest of the day, and it was creating a lot of tension. You could feel the tension in the group, and that's not why I want people there. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it was funny how many of these folks spoke up, made posts on my behalf saying, I love the pictures. I had no idea that this was what I was going to be in for. Maybe. You know, they're all different. Mm -hmm. They're different, but they're the same. You know, some of them really act out, like my husband. Some don't. But you need to be prepared for the worst-case scenario. And by posting these pictures, it, it, it just says it. It's reality. It was my reality. It was his reality. Yeah, and I think part of the problem is, um, you know, with HIPAA laws and, you know, exactly. uh, communities aren't allowed to do that. You know, it's privacy issues and all of this. But um, with you, it's your husband. And what you were looking at, I mean, what you were capturing from, from your lens, just from what you said, was 
these two people coming back with huge grins on this journey, you know, and your husband's thinking he won, I got him good, and yeah, the staff's thinking exactly. I got him back, so I'm doing okay. Yeah. And, and this is uh, this is just another day in the life of, of is, where we're at. It is, and it really is endearing when yeah, you think it, about it. Yeah, it's not. It's about capturing. It's about capturing those silly things that happened, um, mm-hmm. and reframing it with love. And a lot of people aren't able to do that, and it's and it's too bad. And you know, some of it I think is just you know, like you said, people might be new to the journey. Um, some people, you know, it might just be they've never aired their dirty laundry per se, and so it's it's difficult for them to. Um, capture an honest picture of what things are really like. Um, I know I was like that, and our family was always pretty open, but, you know, it wasn't, um, you know, none of of what I do is in terms of bashing or trying to degrade or disrespect my mother um, in any fashion. I, I think it's all about learning and sharing what it's really like. Just like if you go to a third third world country, I can't talk, third world country, <laughs> and people are taking pictures of people starving. You know, okay, we now, look at that. Me, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean, people... But it gets it out there. It gets the word out there. It gets the word out, and people <sighs> say, I want to help to make the change. Exactly. And, and again, it's not, um, I'm not one to be a fear monger, um, but I think, again, for some people, that's where they're going to go. It's going to be scary for them until they proceed with the journey, until they exactly. feel the feelings that might be really uncomfortable, um, and until they can really find that place of joy, um, which you have It takes definitely, a while. Yeah. Oh, it's a process. It's not like, it, you know, dimension oxide and you go. Not overnight. You know, because it a, does progress. Yep. You know, and so every day is just a brand new day. Um, you know, you can make it a brand new day in paradise. You can make yourself miserable if you don't get a grip and learn to laugh at every little thing. Maybe not everything. It depends, you know, uh, safety issues. But, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, pretend you have a little kid, a 200-pound, two-year-old child or less, and, mm-hmm. the, and the way that they're going to act out—that's yep. what happens. Yeah. What is? Yeah. What is really their their mental age and where are they coming from? And embrace that because you can't change it, um, but right. you have to be conscious of it in order to be able to to deal with it. I also think it's about, like you said, that choice in terms of how are you going to how are you going to frame things, how are you going to look at things? Because I'm a firm believer that we basically remember three things in life, what scares us, what saddens us, and what brings us joy. And we will only find what it is we're looking for. And a lot of times we don't even know that we're focusing on the sadness or we're focusing on the scary stuff because right. we just, you know, it's just part of the process. But once you consciously tell yourself, I want to focus on the joyful moments, mm-hmm. I think people will be shocked at how many there are and how simple yeah. They are. Yeah. These aren't big. It's down to basics. Mm-hmm. My God, he took a bite of his cereal with a spoon. Mm-hmm. It was. I remember that. It was the last time he did it at the kitchen table, and then that was the end. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he'd been eating with his hands, which is part of the course. I mean, no big deal. 
So when he picked up a spoon and knew what to do with it, mm-hmm. but it never happened again, ever. Yeah. Or his laugh. Yeah. That was my focus, getting him to smile and laugh, because he had a contagious laugh, even with dementia. Yeah, my mom, like my mom does to this day um, as well. I mean, and she'll just get the, everyone in the room, you know, will look, or, or she'll have, she still has little one-liners that she'll come up with, and sometimes it's just a yep, you know, but it's her yeah. inflection that she delivers it with, or um, it might be her facial expression that she does <laughs> with it, and mm-hmm. you, you just, you, just you kind want of to go, hug wow. it's It's just perfect. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, it's almost like comic timing. It's so perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know those little moments that are dropped in, and to ignore those, you know, to me I found would be just such a waste and right. such a injustice um, to well, our relationship. You can't ignore them because they may never happen again. Mm-hmm. And I think you only learn that you know with time. I mean, fifteen years. Oh, the length of time you've had for your mom versus mine is nothing, but 15 years is a long time. Yep. You know, and I, I guess they're just stubborn, and they're not ready to go yet. But, it, like I said, hang on to it because you may never see it again. As yeah. you say, rejoice in it. Yeah. Because I miss his laughter to this day. He cracked yeah. me up. Just cracked mm-hmm. me up. He was hysterical. Before and after. Yeah, when we were talking um, before the show went live, you had you had asked me, you know, how I've dealt with it all this time, and and you know, my comment was that I've just really refa- reframed my mom's illness um, as a learning tool for the world, you know, and I'm right. giving voice. Exactly. And she's 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 made these sacrifices um, so that I can help other people through this process. I'm um, with you. And raising the That's boys. why I wrote the book. That's exactly yeah. why I wrote the book. It's like, let's make this negative into a positive and see what happens. What and kind I, of really, I really think most people who go through this process, um, if, you know, if they're connected, if they're given enough kind of pats on the backs and encouragement to mm-hmm. share their story, um, it's just so empowering. But a lot of times, um, people don't have that encouragement. And, no, you know, I, I'd I like didn't. To... I think the my sister was the one that offered to help. Mm-hmm. But I think it was maybe, um, maybe a little guilt because she couldn't be there with me the whole time. Mm-hmm. Plus, she's a technical writer, which also helps. And we dropped the ball. It took about six years to get this thing published. Dropped the ball, and two summers ago. I slapped myself upside the head and said, okay, you're either going to drop it or you're going to finish it. And that's what I did. So, mm-hmm. You know, there's too much work, too much experience, too too much to let go of yep. and not share. It would be a crime not to yeah. share it. The knowledge that you um, get on this journey is incredible. And the ability to take that and, and share that with others is is a gift. Um, and it's not going to be perfect for everybody. Um, nope. And it's not supposed to be. And I think that's one of the things that this disease teaches us is that it's not about perfect. 
it's about progress. It's mm-hmm. just about improving things for the future. And if we wait for perfect, nothing's ever going to get done. I mean, our government is showing us that loud and clear. That's for sure. You know, in many ways, in a lot of organizations, you know, we're waiting and waiting and waiting for perfection or we're waiting for money or we're waiting for staff. And all we're doing is giving ourselves excuses to mm-hmm. not to not go forward with progress, to not make itty-bitty changes that can be life-changing for just one person. Mm-hmm. One person is enough to affect, mm-hmm. and that person exactly. can affect somebody else. And right. the ripple effect goes, and the more people that just start you know, making that one simple change, committing um, to making a difference, it's, it's incredible what can well, have happen. Have you seen what Australia has done? Uh, I think it's called Fight Dementia with a Big Fist. Mm-hmm. Um, it's absolutely incredible. I keep getting posts because I, I like their page. Incredible what they're doing as a country. Yep. Yeah, there's some pretty cool things going on. Um, and so much of it, you know, I, I think that's what I have enjoyed so much is being able to connect through social media um, to talk with people all over the world and realize we are not so different. It's funny that you mentioned Fight um, Australia because I was um, just on uh, I was just on their page um, posting a link um, to the show here. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> we were talking, so way too funny. But um, yeah, they're great minds. <laughs> yeah. Is uh, it's they're doing some great great things, and um, you know Europe is doing some neat things, and and we're doing some cool things here in the U.S. as well. I would really like yeah. to see us all work as one. Myself, I think we've got a long, well, long ways to that's go. That's my intention uh, with the Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't imagine. I had a a small film producer uh, do a post on the mm-hmm. Facebook page um, for, I can't, Shattered Lives, I think it's what it's called. Oh, God. Sh- yep. You know about it. And yep. she wanted yep. me to um, post this and, you know, a, a little bit of the video. They're they're raising funds for it. And I, I told my people, you know, don't, don't spend your money. You need to hang on to it. Mm-hmm. But take a look at this. It's not out yet. They're going to start filming again in October, I believe. Yeah. And... Yep. You know, I mean, you just give it enough time. Um, I don't know. People are out there, and and as you say, we need to do this together. We need to get teamwork. Fifty heads are better than one. Well, yeah, with Shattered Love, what they're doing is they're doing crowdfunding to be able to produce it. It's a short film. I've read the script. It's an unbelievable script um, Mm -hmm. that I think really shows... The two, the two heads of dementia, um, both from the the patient's world and the caregiver world. Right. And they've got a, a nice cast, and and most people are really volunteering most of their time or taking significantly less to do mm-hmm. this, but they really want to um, get the word out there. So, you know, but there's there are lots of initiatives out there, and it just shows, you know, with all this crowdfunding that's going on, um, how underfunded we are. And, um, you know, how some of our larger organizations aren't embracing individual creativity, in, in my belief, um, and, which is too bad. 
Um, and I think working together, we could do so much more uh, than than what we're doing right now. I do just mm-hmm. want to mention to our audience, if anybody has any questions, you can please feel free to type in a comment into the chat box. Or if you'd like to call in and ask Susan a question, you can call 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757. And, and we would love to hear hear your thoughts um, regarding the conversation here today. I do want to talk to you a little bit um, about your book, needless to say, and um, and just about your husband's diagnosis and and things. One of the things that you mentioned in the book was on October 13th in 1998, you said your greatest fear was realized. Can you share with us what that what that was and how that came to be? Oh, that life as a couple and as a team was over. Uh, I think what blew me, you know, you know, your your spouse, it, it, it's a teammate. You do things together. You you divvy up the chores. You love one another. You you know all that goes along with the marriage. And then all of a sudden, um, I had to be the boss of two lives. Mm-hmm. No help whatsoever. Uh, and that our marriage was pretty much over. That sounds negative, but, and I learned along the way to cope with all of that. It was just alienating, lonely, what do I do next, who do I call, who's going to help, you know, just a flood of thoughts that uh, finally I put all down on paper and needed, I'm sort of anally organized, that's one thing that helped me through this. Is just mm-hmm. getting every single thing on paper that was bothering me, that I needed to to deal with. Oh my God, financially, what are we going to do? Uh, a trust, uh, you know, all the POA, medical power of attorney, you know, all of these things. Mm-hmm. Just a flood, and trying to sift through that and prioritize. Because frankly, the very next day, um, I went to um, our attorney and our trust attorney and whatever else and had all kinds of things drawn up uh just to cover my cover our buns mhm you know you you it's difficult nowadays that was probably the most difficult issue uh because i had i felt as though i had to jump on it instantly you didn't have time to even breathe at least mm-hmm. i didn't feel like i did now, a lot of people don't go about it that way, but then if they don't, sometimes they run into trouble uh, because if you wait too long to deal with some of these legal issues and your loved one is no longer, you know, they're not coherent enough, they can't sign their name or whatever, you're going to be in a financial mess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's... It, it's tough. It's you know when you when you come to that um, realization that life as you know it has changed, and it's never ever going to be. The yeah, same. it's only going to get worse. You know, and and so how do you how do you reframe that? How do you how do you survive that? 
What um, what recommendations do you have uh, for someone who is a, a caregiver, kind of on on the cusp of of that realization? Because it takes a while, uh, I think, with this disease. It's not something that most of us uh, see right away, especially with early diagnosis. You know, you've got mm-hmm. time um, mm-hmm. where things still can be normal. You know, I did, we were, uh, Red was diagnosed initially with Pick's disease uh, mm-hmm. at the Mayo Clinic. And the very first thing I did, and actually I had help from my brother-in-law, um, who lives up in San Francisco, we decided to get a second opinion. And so we uh, flew over to um, uh, UCSF and uh, met with Dr. Bruce Miller, who was um world-renowned neurologist up there and went through, I don't know, three, four, five days of testing just to narrow it down. I wanted to know exactly what I was dealing with so that I could prepare for it in one way or another. I mean, you can't really prepare for the day-to-day, but you can prepare for the future, Mm -hmm. prepare for the worst. And so then the diagnosis was frontal temporal lobe dementia. And... um, (laughs) So once I got that information, uh, I was able to just get on the computer and research it and research it and research it. And uh, a little, I I don't really recommend throwing yourself into that uh, with the gusto that I did because it is overwhelming. I was going to say, that can be really depressing. Yeah, very depressing and very overwhelming. So if I had it to do over again, uh, I would have taken it, you know, <clears throat> pardon me, broken it up a little bit. But mm, I'm sort of a type A myself, too, and I, I don't like surprises, and I wanted to know. Mm-hmm. Scared, just scared, because he had run the household for, you know, so many years. And it was up on a pedestal and was my idol, and all of a sudden, oh, my God. You know, i got to get a grip here. Yeah. Yep, it didn't really. Even, I, don't, I don't think I realized that I was actually capable of this sort of thing, and so okay. I, it, it it did change my life, um, it, for the best. Actually, learned can a lot you, about myself. Okay, I was going to ask if you can share with us what you what you feel that you've learned. Hmm. Well, I always knew laughter was the best medicine, and I still go by that because uh, it, it got us through 15 years of, you know, dementia. Um, I used to be very uh, anal, nitpicky about everything, about the house. Everything had to be perfect. And what I learned was you got to let that go. You have to pick pick your fights or don't pick any fights, you know, it It isn't important if he comes out with his shoes on the wrong foot and a plaid shirt and plaid pants and or as you've seen in the pictures with his <laughs> depends over his head and a shirt around his waist. I mean you just you look at him and you say, "My God, man, what an effort! Congratulations, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then you fix it. Mm-hmm. you don't get angry you know." I, that was huge for me to just let things go. Let and it go. Did you, 
Did you feel you actually had more control when you let it go? Absolutely. I, that's Absolutely. what I came to realize, and it was like, oh, I didn't expect that. And and that mm-hmm. was like the biggest gift, gift of all because I was yeah. so, I was holding on so much for control. And it was just like, oh, my gosh, I have so much more control now that I'm not trying to right. control. You can't control dementia. It's it's like it's its own entity. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> you just can't. And the sooner that one realizes that, the happier they're going to be, and frankly, the happier the patient's going to be. Everybody I mean, it, around you. Yeah. yeah, it's useless to argue with them, and I know I was arguing with him a lot, and so <clears throat> I determined. <clears throat> that all of these catastrophic reactions he was having and and some of the behavior was in reality my fault for dealing with with him the wrong way. Instead of, okay, you know, pacify. Pacify, redirect, distract. Mm-hmm. And once you learn that, it actually works. It actually yeah. works. I mean, if they're in the middle of a reaction... You know, with him, I'd put on the Latino music and start dancing. And he thought that was hysterical. <laughs> or grab him, kiss him up, hug him up. There's a distraction. Mm-hmm. Just, you have to use your imagination. And, you know, I, we didn't have children. That would have been very beneficial um, because I would have had that experience. So the caregiver, my best caregiver, uh, she had three, and so she was also coming up with things in my wildest dreams I wouldn't have thought about doing because she had babies. So can you give us some example? Oh, this is a good one. And a lot of people on uh, the uh, Facebook site have been having this issue. It seems to be common with dementia patients and uh, Toileting. The toilet seems to be a fascination, and they will flush and flush and flush and flush. I mean, he flooded my mom's house. He flooded this house out the back door. And I'm oh my God, what do I do? She comes in and turns the water off mm-hmm. behind the toilet. So he only gets one flush. Mm-hmm. Now, how easy is that? Yep. In yeah, one and second. everyone's sane. Uh, yeah, everyone is sane. <laughs> yeah. There's no damage. There's no cleanup. No. There's, yep. But you, you know, when you're in the middle of this and you're stressed and you can't focus, you just don't think of the simple things. Yeah. Uh, at all, or or even um, he in the past would always put the dishes in the dishwasher and run the dishwasher. Well, I, this, this was early on, and what I didn't realize, I finally did, is that he was filling the dishwasher with Dawn dishwashing liquid. And I came out, and the whole kitchen was full of bubbles. <laughs> and it, it took me twice. The second time he did it, it burnt out. It burnt a hole through the dishwasher, mm-hmm. um, smelling electricity. What did she do? She pulled the handle off of the dishwasher so he couldn't turn it on. Did I feel like the village idiot? You bet. Yeah. But I, I didn't have it in my head. Yeah. It wasn't or, there. Or on, a, on a stove, a lot of times, people will just take the knobs off so that they, you Exactly. Know, 
little things or the garbage disposal can be a really scary thing. Disable it. You know, just unplug it, and if you need to use it, plug it back in. Yeah. Um, But all kinds of little things like that that you just, you're in such overload sometimes that we just, we can't see um, through the clouds before us. And and you get so tired. You're so tired of constantly fixing problems or trying to foresee them. Um, that it's it's exhausting, and so asking for a new perspective, and yes. then and then you just sit back and kind of giggle, going, "Wow, that was really quite simple." <laughs> <laughs> you know, it and, is, and being able to take joy in that moment of it being fixed in a creative fashion, where you you didn't really have to take responsibility for it, someone else just did it for you. You know, yeah. it, it's. And you again. need help. You need more than just your brain. You know, and, and we ran into all kinds of problems, or I did, in, in reference to being that stressed. People out there um, trying to take advantage of you once they learned that you had that in your family. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a neighbor that wanted to buy the house. And finally... Um, I told him, I said, well, you know, he's not dead yet. Just quit bothering me. I haven't sold it yet, and I'm not going to. Just out of spite. And and problems with banks. Even though I had every single legal piece of paper um, ready to go and and handed to them, and then they're trying to sell me, well, you need to have a conservatorship for him. Blah, blah. Well, I already spent a lot of money getting full guardianship of him. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't need a conservatorship. Anyway, that day I took our $5 and went somewhere else. <laughs> oh, Who yeah. needs it? I've had my issue with the bank just over my mom's power of attorney with, you know, she gets a VA check for $90 a month. And I don't have a separate account for her at this point because she's gone through everything, you know. So I, I put it in my account and, I, and then I turn around and I write it to the nursing home, and she gets her hair done, you know, for her sure. $90. And they're like, well, we need your power of attorney. And I just, a couple of times I've just marched in there and just vented and just yes. said, I want to talk to the manager. I'm like, I am so sick. I should not have to carry these documents in my car. A, it's not a good thing to just be leaving around. And I said, but I have brought these in multiple times. You've scanned them. You say there's notes. Yes. No one can ever find it. It's $90. It's yeah. <laughs> For God's sakes. <laughs> and it's just, oh, my gosh. But I just, a couple of times I've lost it, you know, and I know I have not been nice. And it's just, but it's just, it gets so old and you're so tired. They deserve of, what they got. They deserve the, what you gave them. I hope you oh gave them, gosh. you know, the wrath. They, you, you know, know what? One, pardon me. Well, I understand they've got a job to do, but it's like there's got to be someplace in their template for situations like this because there's going to be there's a lot of this going on. There's going to be a lot more. So fix your database. You know, yeah. become dementia friendly. Become caregiver friendly. Um, in your business because it's just, oh, my gosh, it just makes you want to collapse, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I remember then, this one time we'd gotten a tax check, and they had all the paperwork they needed. They would not let me deposit it without his signature. And we were, he he was at home with the caregiver. They forced me 
to bring my husband down. And I told them, he is mute. He mm-hmm. cannot sign his name. You know, he's like a child. Nonetheless, they forced me to bring him down, hold his hand to put an X where the signature is supposed to be. Yeah. Get him out of his chair, walk the poor little thing in. I was livid. Livid. Yeah. Yeah, we really... He, he he was humiliated, and, you know, he was demented. He was still humiliated. You could see it. You know how they look to you for answers? Yeah. You know how that when... And he was mute. So he's looking at me like, mm. oh. Yeah. I got to slap them ball-headed for doing that to him. Yeah, you know? it's, it's, it's too bad. I, I really, I hope, um, and I just launched, um, was it last week? The twenty on the twentieth, dementia friendly businesses here in the U.S. and I, you know, I really want to get out to companies and talk about these types of issues and how they can make a difference in people's lives. And they're not huge changes. No. Um, and I understand the legalities, um, but they have to understand the practicalities of mm-hmm. what they're doing, why they're doing it, and and how they go about it is just. So asinine sometimes and so frustrating. And, you know, um, like everything else, people talk about what frustrates them, you know, and it's not good press for them. Mm-hmm. And so, and there's so many simple things that can be done, um, but they can't be done if people aren't coming from a compassionate source to begin with. Right. You know, they, just ha- they have to look at the person. Um, and the people before them, and then look at the task and how it can get done. Um, but we've gotten so structured as a society, and you know, every task has to be done in such and such a time frame, and yada 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 yada. And it's just, it's it's really quite sad. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, again, I think I think that's one of the gifts of this disease. I think it's going to change us as a world. Um, I think it's going to force us to be different and, um, to, like you said earlier, to get back to the basics mm-hmm. and um, appreciate the simple, simple things that we have overlooked um, right. and pushed down and, and made not important because they really, when you're in the mix of something like this, they're huge. These oh, little yeah. things yep. are huge. They're lifesavers. And um, they need to be—they need to really be understood and looked at and valued. And mm-hmm. you know, right now, I just don't think that we value them at all as a as a society. Mm-hmm. We're so worried about chasing the buck. And um, that's right. There's got to be a way we can chase the buck, be compliant, and still be compassionate, mm-hmm. and provide high quality service and and be person centered and. So many of the businesses aren't person-centered because they've streamlined everything. You know, everyone's got to fit in one box and walk on mm-hmm. one path, and mm-hmm. and it's just not going to work. Yeah, I, I know. Dementia. We we I ran into that um, in hospital settings as well. Mm-hmm. We seem to have a portion of the society that is deemed disposable at this point. And I ran, I've recently ran into that with um, our schizophrenic brother that was ill, as well as my husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and it was just it. Yeah, I was like you at the bank. Um, mm-hmm. Not nice, not nice. And if in one instance, if my brother-in-law hadn't showed up, I might have done something that I really would have regretted. Uh-huh. You know, that lying to me, and uh, I, I don't know. I they just don't seem to care. A lot of them, not all of them. Apparently, well, the ones that I've been going to. Well, and I think that's one of the things that's so difficult is when when you are sitting across from somebody and you really think the other person doesn't care. I mean, to me, that's where it just slaps me up, up upside the face, and I just it makes me really sad um, and really angry to, yes. to think that. And, I, and my thought might be wrong, but that's the impression that you're leaving me, mm-hmm. um, is that you just don't care. They and, didn't. I took mm-hmm. uh, Red in this one time. He, This is a good one. He drank, boy, was I a slow learner. He drank uh, half a bottle of Dawn dishwashing liquid. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Well, you know what that will produce, and it did. And I couldn't get it under control in the house, and I couldn't uh-huh. get him rehydrated. Um, and so I had to call 911 and take him over there, uh, first of all, because I really needed to clean. It was everywhere everywhere uh-huh. the whole house and finally we got him up to his room and this doctor resident i'm not sure what he was you could hear him complaining about lack of sleep out in the hallway in the meantime we're waiting We've been there for like nine hours for mm-hmm. him to show his face uh, and he came into the room and i told him my husband was mute yet he proceeded to ask poor red a million questions about this and that. Didn't listen to a word I had to say. And looked at me and said, well, I assume you're here to place him. Oh. And uh, I lost it. You know, I said, I, I heard you complaining about lack of sleep. Damn it, I haven't had any sleep for 12 years now. So I don't want to hear mm-hmm. about it. He needs to be rehydrated. He can't talk. He, You know... Just do it, and I'll get him in the morning after I clean the poop up from the house. Uh-huh. You know, at least give me that. Yep. Oh, I can have the stories I have. <laughs> well, it is. It's you know, it's an interesting journey, and um, you know, I really encourage people to um, to get your book, uh, Dementia: The Journey Ahead, and it's a practical guide. For in-home caregivers, and you've got beginning um, to end. Mm-hmm. And you've got lots of great information in here. Plus, there's some poetry and there's some checklists and uh, it, just a little bit of everything. Plus, you've got it indexed, which you know a lot of books aren't indexed in the back, but right. uh, it's it's nice to be able to just be able to do that quick find. And then you've got a list of resources. And it's large print, which I I love. As I that was older. intentional, because I can't see a darn thing. <laughs> I yep. assume most and, people can't. Well, and I love the pictures that you've um, that you've shared. You know, I'm looking at one right now where uh, he's got kisses all over his face. You know, that's my favorite. Yep. yep. Valentine's it's, Day. Yep, 2005. <laughs> it says here, and he's just beaming. He is just oh, yeah. beaming. He loves so very, very nice job with the book, and I, 
I Thank so you. appreciate all the time that you've given us uh, today. Um, our hour is just about up. Anything else you would like to share with our audience at all? Just remember to laugh. You know, find the funny side of anything and everything. Mm-hmm. Find the humor in everyday situations. Uh, don't be afraid to be silly. Nobody cares. The yeah. sillier you are, the happier they're going to be. Well, and I, I think, the you know, the disease for me taught me how to play again. I I, I yes. took life real seriously as an adult. Yes. And it was like, oh, it's really kind of fun to be able to play again and, and take yeah. things lightly and not worry about what everyone is thinking and exactly. not trying to fit into the world's mold as I thought I was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you can really find yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's that's huge. Anyways, it was well, Usually there's something age brings, too. But we find it out a little bit sooner when we're a caregiver, which is mm-hmm. a good thing. Yep. Now, how can people get a hold of you, Susan? What's the best route? Oh, let me see. Um, I have a uh, the email address, which would be uh, thejourneyatcox.net. Uh, we have our author site, which is dementiathejourneyahead.com, all one word, all small case. Uh, and and also on Facebook. Uh, the last bit of the Facebook is Caregiving 101, and that's our forum. And I encourage anybody that's just feeling alone and alienated, whatever, join the forum. Um, a lot of good people on there, all different types of dementia on there. A lot of brainstorming, a lot of you know camaraderie. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. And so that's uh, if they just put in Caregiving 101, they'll be able to, to find yeah, that. Yeah, that, that t- should yeah. take you to the Facebook forum. Absolutely. Okay. Great. Well, with that, I'm going to go ahead and let you go, and I'm going to pull in our next guest. And, again, I, I wish you all the best, and I, I thank you for being so brave and honest to share everything that you did with us, um, not only on the air, but to, to put it in a book. Um, and to share your journey with the world, um, I would I have to believe Red is very proud of you. So thank you. Well, he likes to be the center of attention, so no problem. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for having me on the show, Lori. Okay, great. You have a good day, Susan. Bye now. You too. Bye. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our next guest, who is Bob DeMarco. And Bob is the founder of Alzheimer's Reading Room, and he's also an ex-Wall Street executive and an Alzheimer's caregiver. He started uh, learning about Alzheimer's the hard way by living with the disease from the front row, as he refers to it. He took care of his mother, Dottie, from November 17, 2003, until she went to heaven on May 25th of this year. Together, Bob and Dottie learned that while Alzheimer's is always burdensome at the onset um, for both the patient and the caregiver, it can become a journey filled with joy. Bob believes that every person with dementia is capable of more than we can ever imagine. And he prefers to describe the person with Alzheimer's and related dementia as the deeply forgetful. 
So welcome, Bob. How are you doing today? Hi, Laurie. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm just thrilled to have you on the show. You are just uh, full of so much information, and uh, you do just such a wonderful job uh, with the Alzheimer's Reading Room. And um, Bob is very renowned throughout the world, has tons of followers, and um, I'm just thrilled that you're going to be with us today to share some, some insights on a different platform. And, uh, again, I want to let our audience know that you're more than welcome to call in during the show and ask a question at 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757, and you'll just have to push 1 to get into my queue. Or if you signed in with Facebook, you can go ahead and use the chat box uh, to make any comments or questions. I think what we'll do today, um, Bob, is to start out with um, having you explain the term you use, deeply forgetful, um, in place of the Alzheimer's sufferer. Can you explain why you like using that term? Uh, I'll say on top, for me, um, this is how I turned my mother uh, back into a whole person, from my point of view. Um, But let me just say, most Alzheimer's disease caregivers tend to focus and sometimes they obsess uh, about memory. And by this I mean they use post-it notes, whiteboards, uh, and things like that to try to help a person with AD remember. They also say things like, don't you remember, or you just ask me that. And I want to say up front, uh, I never use post-it notes or whiteboards, uh, but I did say, don't you remember or you just asked me that and a lot of things along those lines. It seems to me it's hard to comprehend the deterioration of right now memory uh, in patients with AD, and the right now memory goes first. So whatever is happening right now, if a person asked you a question over and over, um, they don't remember they just asked you, and more likely than not, they're trying to find out something else, so you have to listen pretty hard. Um, so it is my belief that caregivers should focus on memories, not memory, and this is kind of a little off this topic. Music, pictures, discussions of the way back past are good tools that can enliven a person who is deeply forgetful. And enliven is a key word, uh, brighten them up, so to speak. Uh, I do have a different view of dementia than most caregivers. Uh, it seemed to me early on that dementia is about the gradual deterioration of mental functioning. And specifically what I mean by that is thinking, concentration, includes memory, uh, judgment, and also includes moodiness and challenging behavior. These all affect a person's ability to perform daily activities. So, for example, it's not unusual for an AD patient to to forget the importance of taking a shower. Uh, You can go to a message board and read about this over and over. Uh, In my opinion, it's not likely that you're going to get uh, a person who is deeply forgetful to take a shower by trying to explain to them over and over why they need to take a shower, and they do, of course, or why they should take a shower. And I can tell you, it didn't work well for me. So I decided to focus on what I call the deep forget and later on change to deeply forgetful. Uh, When I did this, I started to think of my mother as deeply forgetful and not as an Alzheimer's patient. And that really changed my attitude because for some reason, and I'm 
just like everybody else. You know, I didn't know anything about really about Alzheimer's before it struck or before it came to our family. Uh, we all have biases in our head from what we've heard or what we've learned. There's certainly a stigma attached to Alzheimer's. So what I was doing is I embarked on a mission to help my mother keep from forgetting how to do things. And I thought that was important. I wasn't trying to get her to remember. I was trying to keep her from forgetting. So an example would be in her, in her normal everyday life, my mother would wake up, read a newspaper, and, the, and then do the crossword puzzle. When I say her regular everyday life, I'm referring uh, long before we had a diagnosis of AD. This is what she did in the morning. So we started each and every day by doing just that. I would discuss the front page of the paper with her, look at the recipe page, ask her to read me the ingredients, and then eventually put the crossword puzzle in front of her if she didn't do it as a result. And here's what happened over eight and a half years. Um, my mother never forgot how to read. She could still get three-letter words in the crossword puzzle after she scored a 12 on the MMSC. Not the greatest test, but just to give you a baseline. Below 16 indicates moderate to severe dementia. I also placed a book on my mother's pillow every night because throughout my life, I can remember the last thing she would do at night was read. Now, I can tell you, she couldn't remember a word she read. She could still read. I watched her do it. I watched her dog ear the last page she read, and I watched her put the book down and turn off the light before she went to sleep. Before she went to sleep. So I think I think this explains in part why she could still read out loud if asked to, and why she could hold a conversation uh, even after a long period of deterioration in her brain. And I can tell you, most neurologists and geriatric care persons. Uh, were really amazed at her ability to read and to read out loud. And people often ask me, you know, how it was that she could st still speak full sentences. So, if I had not done this, I believe she would have forgotten how to read. If I didn't help her, uh, and I didn't help her not to forget, and I think if she had forgotten how to read, and then eventually she might have forgotten how to speak full sentences. So for mm -hmm. me, I didn't want my mother to forget. Uh, I didn't care whether or not she could remember what she read. It didn't bother me. I could control the forgetting, in my opinion, but I could not control her memory loss. Um, okay. Here's a here's a good. Let, let me just get in this real quick. I know I'm going kind of long here. Uh, okay. Here's a good. Here's a good example. I think of the difference between memory and forgetting. Uh, in 2010, as part of her testing, my mother was shown a picture of a fork. She was asked, what is this, and what do you do with it? She could not answer either question. Then she was handed a fork and asked to demonstrate what you do with it. She demonstrated how you use it to eat. She was then asked, what is it? She got a look on her face like she was being treated like an idiot. And in fact, she said, what do you think? I'm an idiot. This is a fork. Uh, I can tell you that did tickle the woman that was giving her the test. My point. She couldn't remember, but she didn't forget. And that's the point I'm trying to make here. Once I started viewing my mother as deeply forgetful, I forgot she had Alzheimer's. This lifted a great burden off my back. So what I'm trying to say here is by doing this and by viewing my mother as deeply forgetful, it seemed to me um, that I changed her back to a whole person and not something less than a whole person. 
Well, I like that because what that really does is it, it takes things and puts it in a new perspective because when we, when we I think as most people, you know, try to recall memory, what we're forgetting is the process to recall. And their, their process is jarbled. And, again, it doesn't mean that they don't know. They just can't spit it out in the way they used to. And so, and, and that can be so frustrating to them, it can be frustrating to you, it can be frustrating to others. And by reframing that, it, it removes that frustration and, and it focuses on their abilities and um, trying to maintain those. And you stay with routines, which I think are just critical and I think undervalued. Um, and it sounds like you've done a brilliant job with um with understanding the importance of routine um, with your with your mom, um, can you tell us uh, a little bit about you? You also refer to, you know, you had to enter the Alzheimer's world. Can you tell people where where is that and, and what what does that look like to you? Excuse me. Um, I'll, I'll just start out by saying briefly. Um, that for about 18 months, most of what was happening to me happens, I think, to most caregivers, and that was un- that was I was under a tremendous amount of burden. It almost seemed, no matter how hard I tried, or the harder I tried, we just weren't getting anywhere. Um, I was no different than anybody else. Like most AD caregivers, at first, I tried to communicate with my mother the way we always communicated. So, for example, five minutes after, and and by the way, I'm going to tell you something that my mother said for the whole eight and a half years. Five minutes after eating a steak or a baked potato and broccoli, my mother would say, I'm hungry, I'm starving. And, of course, in the beginning, I would respond, you can't be hungry, you just ate. (laughs) And then, of course, that would invariably lead, uh, at the minimum, to an argument. Mm -hmm. Uh, My mother said to me in the first years over and over, Get out. I don't want you here. I don't need you. That's pretty hard to swallow when you're taking care of somebody 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So I would try to explain to her how she couldn't live alone without me. And all that would end up doing was leading to one of the worst things that happened to us, worse than an argument. My mother would go to her, go into her bedroom, get in the bed, and refuse to come out for hours. And that was mm-hmm. just a big stomach ache and a heartache. So the stress, burden, heartache, and stomach aches were enormous, and I just couldn't figure out what to do about it. Finally, about 1 a.m. in the morning, uh, I have this big pad I call the Vinci pad. It's like newsprint. I've been using these things for 30 years. I kind of start out by doodling, but normally I'm trying to figure out pros and cons or a solution to a problem. And I've learned over the years sometimes the solution will just come out of your hand if you give it a chance. So I'm sitting there doodling away and doing tic-tac-toe, and all of a sudden I wrote down these words, something has to change. And I started drawing circles around those words. And eventually I wrote, and that something is me. I was kind of startled. So now I had two circles, and I started to connect them, uh, and I felt immediately elated. I felt stress coming out of me. I was actually smiling. Um, But here's the thing. I had no idea how I was going to change, but at least I realized I had to. 
Yep. Um, so I started I started thinking about it. Uh, and eventually what happened, uh, it led to what was first called, or what I first called, Dottie's World. And later on, I changed the name of it to Alzheimer's World. And I, in my head, I decided I was going to go into this new place and start looking at everything from Dottie's point of view. So instead of making it about me, I started to understand this is about Dottie. And once I learned that or figured that out, I started to listen listen to her. And amazingly, instead of obsessing over her strange, bizarre, and often confusing behavior, I started to ask myself, what is she feeling? Why is she doing this? How does she feel right now? And I just really tried to look at everything uh, from her point of view. And as I did that, all these crazy things that were, you know, all the things that were driving me crazy, they just didn't bother me anymore. They started to seem normal because I was looking at the world from my mother's perspective. And um, you might laugh at this, but sometimes when these things would start to happen, I would I'd just be me and my mother here. I'd say out loud to myself, here we go again, and I'd start to laugh. So what, I wanted to get over into my mother's world, so what I did was I drew... I drew an imaginary line right down the middle of our home. And whenever I had to deal with Dottie or try to deal with her effectively, the first thing that I did in the beginning was take one giant step to the left. And I told my brain, we're going into this other world, Alzheimer's world. And I was getting my brain to switch gears. So instead of venting or letting the things driving me crazy, which were internal to me, in Alzheimer's world, I was trying to look at the world from my mother's point of view, and I wanted to know um, how she was feeling. And it's really amazing, once you get it down a bit, Alzheimer's world is actually a kinder, gentler, more loving place. And this is where you go to, in my opinion, to learn how to understand, cope, and communicate with a person who is becoming more and more deeply forgetful. And I'll give you one quick example. Um, when my mother would tell me to get out, I don't need you, instead of getting in an argument with her and telling her she did need me or whatever it was that I was doing, I would put my arm around her, I would put my head on her head, hold her hand, and I would say to her, I'm not going anywhere. I'm here to take care of you. We're here together now. This is one small example, but this is what I'm here to tell you. She stopped telling me to get out, and she started trusting me. Yep. I well, hope it gives so you somewhat of an that idea. They have that, that we're going to abandon them because they know things have changed. They know they're different. Um, and I know from, from my mom, I mean, you could see the fear. And she, you know, in the beginning stages, I don't know if your mom did this as well, but, I mean, she tried to hide it. And, you know, she did everything in her power to, to fit in and to be the same. And then there comes this point in time where they just can't anymore. And, you know, she got really angry. She got really paranoid. She, you know, she just didn't want to be around anymore. Um, she didn't feel deserving. She didn't want to be a burden. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And, you know, one can only imagine what it must be like to walk in those shoes. And and then when, when Mom got to the point where she didn't remember that she didn't know anymore, um, things got a little calmer. Um, because you, she, know, you know, Lori... Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't mean to jump in here. I think you're making a really very important key point here. Um, and 
you know, in the beginning as caregivers, we tend to vent and complain, and we turn it kind of into all about us. Oh, yeah. um, it took me it took me a while. I mean, there's two parts to the equation. So yes, when when you get the verdict, when you hear Alzheimer's, certainly as the caregiver, you're going to go through denial, grief, confusion, all those kinds of things, and you have to try to deal with them. But I think some of us, and this would include me, don't quite understand at the beginning that the person who is living with Alzheimer's or related dementia is also going through a tremendous burden. Whether they can articulate it or not, just what you just got done saying, they are confused. They have, you know, all kinds of feelings going through their body that are similar to the feelings that we have when we get confused in life and that type of thing, although they're exacerbated because in our case, if let's say you and I had an argument, you know, we might hang up the phone or something, and then in 15 minutes or a couple hours, we could talk to each other and we could resolve it. The problem in the, uh, you know, in this paradigm is when you have an argument with a person that's deeply forgetful, you really can't go back and resolve it past a certain point because they don't really remember what the argument was, but they still may be feeling those feelings of, confusion or anger or whatever it is. So I think you're, I think you're making a really critical point. Uh, and the point being, you know, you have to start to think about how that person thinks and feels and how they're dealing with stimuli in the environment. Uh, and they might very well be dealing with it in a very different way than they have in the past and in a very different way than you and I would deal with the same stimuli. Yeah, definitely. I I came up with a tool called Your Memory Chip, which <clears throat> helped me as a caregiver focus on being person-centered. And I always thought I was being very person-centered because I had my list of all the things I was caring, um, you know, for my mom with, you know, doing the laundry and getting the meals and the medications and the doctor's appointments, and the list goes on. And those were all person-centered, I thought, until I realized that I had emotions tied to all of those things. And all of those were really just tasks. And all my emotions were tied to me and my outcomes, <laughs> not her. And so the memory chip got me to focus instead of on the task, to focus on three things that really helped me be person-centered. And that is, is she safe? Is she happy? And is she pain-free? And when I focused on those things, I could enter her world and I could let go of my control, and I and I I didn't have this need for things to be perfect or to be timely, um, and we were just able to engage on a whole different level, and it it lifted so much of that weight that I was talking with uh, Susan on before that the burden that you feel as a caregiver um, of trying to do the right thing, and it just allowed me to kind of play and have my relationship back because doing all those tasks, you, you kind of lose your relationship. And you're doing it because of your relationship. You know, if you're a family caregiver, I mean, that's typically what got you in, into it in the first place. And so for me, that was just a, a huge, huge shift in terms of my mentality and um, trying to get into her her world and, you know, weighing out, kind of like you said earlier, is it worth the fight? You know, because you really can't fight. You can't win. There's no outcomes here. It's 
It's about, you know, are they content? Are they peaceful? And to me, that's really the goal that really needs to, you know, that's got to be the light at the end of the tunnel. That's got to be what we're after is their peacefulness, their contentment, um, not ours. And if they're peaceful, you know, typically we are too. Did you find that or am I off on that? No, um, I, I again, I, I'm agreeing with what you say, uh, and I'm thinking back, um, you know, when I guess I went from me, you, uh, in our relationship to we, us, and I brought the we back into the occasion, so when something was happening, you know, we were trying to come together. We were trying to solve the problem, and over a long period of time, and actually there were times when my mother you know, would do something that I couldn't believe, the kind of the more there, and then I would come to a conclusion, gee, we could do this, and this might work. And I, I really didn't know at certain points in time whether, you know, I was the chicken or the egg. In other words, you know, was this my idea or was this her idea? And when she was actually communicating to me, um, you know, and so we started to, you know, come together in that way, which is basically what you're describing. And then some of these other things that are common to all of us, the confusion, the anger, uh, you know, they tend to start to go away once you start reconnecting with a person. Mm -hmm. And it's not that easy to connect because in my case, and I, I, I think you experience this too, you're trying to connect with that person in the way you always have. In my case, I had a great relationship with my mother. So to be honest with you, I thought it was going to be very easy to reconnect with her, you know, kind of get in the way back machine. Mm -hmm. But she was changing because of her illness, uh, you know, and I just always seemed to be behind uh, until I finally figured out how to connect us together and then get out in front of things and start anticipating what was going to happen. So, yeah, I think you're describing, you know, and even the words you lose, use, I listen very carefully to caregivers when they speak. And if they're not saying we or they're not saying us, then there's an automatic communication disconnect. And, and once again, you know, if I start saying to you, 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 then we're probably not communicating very well, you know, if we can't reach the point where we start to say, this is what we need to do, you know, let's do this together, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, that was one thing I was going to mention about uh when you were talking about shifting from that I to we, um, it's huge. And it's all, you know, it's kind of like with shifting with that caregiving to care partnering because there is a give and a receive. And when we say caregiving all the time, it's like, you know, we're filling their well and we're not getting anything back. But I know this whole process, I've gotten so much back and I have learned so much and it's made me a better person um, and not all the time had I appreciated it because I was tired or I was frustrated. <laughs> but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I can say this journey has has really made me a much, I think, a much, much better person. Um, and I view things in a very different light. And I, I don't chase that perfection. I don't chase the materialism. I don't, um, you know, I, I just uh, basic things are really, really important to me. Now we've got a caller on the line from a one nine four five number. I'm going to go ahead and pull you in, and you can ask your question. Last uh, portion of your number is one nine four five. Did you have a question or a comment? 
Hello. Uh oh. Well, they might not. They might not want to. Sometimes people get a little nervous, so I'll just put them back on hold. There, that's not a problem. Just always, uh, always like to ask and and see just in case. Um, well, this has just been a really interesting um, conversation, Bob. Now, one of the things that I, I just always loved hearing about was the parrot. Can you tell people about the parrot? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, actually. Just chuckle. Um, well, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, we named, I bought a toy, and that was a repeat parrot that just repeats back two times whatever you say to it. And uh, I don't remember how we did it, but we named, when we bought him, his name was Pete, but we changed his name to Harvey. Mm-hmm. And eventually we actually had three parrots. But at any rate, um, uh, I consider this to be the greatest of all caregiver tools that I ever got my hands on. And I know that may sound a little bit crazy. Now, when I bought this parrot, I bought it for my mother for Christmas, and I thought, well, this will make her laugh. And um, there was a period of time in the beginning where my mother did not laugh or smile for two years, and Mm -hmm. I have to tell you, it was killing me. And then we did some things, and she started to laugh. So the laugh and the smile just became more and more important to me, so I thought this parrot's going to really make her laugh. Um, So we got the parrot, and she started talking. Of course, at the very beginning, she would say something, and then the parrot would talk, and she'd be talking. But I was, like, shocked because in a day or two, she got right in rhythm with the parrot because you have to stop. So if you say, hi, Harvey, you have to wait for Harvey to say, hi, Harvey, hi, Harvey, and then, you know, Dottie would say, oh, you dummy, and, you know, but she learned how to talk to it. And then uh, some really amazing things started to happen. Um, Harvey was kind of like a detective. I might be asking my mother, do you have a headache, or do you want to do this? Or, do you want? And she would just be saying nothing, no, no. And then the next thing I would know, she'd be alone with Harvey in the next room, and she would say, Harvey, I have a splitting headache, or Harvey, this or that, and the other thing. So he was kind of like a detective. Uh, And this (laughs) continued on, and um, Harvey became Dottie's best friend. So she'd wake up in the morning, and uh, at this stage she would go, Yoo-hoo, I'm awake, you know, that would be to me. And I'd go up and get in front of her and hold her hands and give her a smile. Um, Again, the smile was important because we went years where my mother didn't smile and where she was mean. Uh, and now I had her smiling away. And then the first thing she would say is, where's Harvey? <laughs> Even though he was relatively new in our life and didn't come along until we were about six years in of eight and a half years. And sometimes I would forget to turn him on. I had him on the kitchen table, which was where uh, I took her to each morning. And so if Harvey, if I forgot to put him on, she'd go say something to Harvey, and then she'd start going, oh, you dummy, or she'd say, well, what are you asleep, wake up, and then I'd click him on and he'd start talking. And um, uh, if you saw, you probably saw some of the videos on my site. After a while, Mm -hmm. I would start singing, and then Harvey would start singing, and then Dottie would start singing, and I have quite a few videos of uh, Dottie and Harvey singing things like Shine on Harvest Moon. Um, It really became, and this is, you know, I'm telling you the importance. I mean, this really brought an extra added dimension of socialization into her life. And 
you could see after a while there were dramatic improvements in, in the way she interacted with people uh, and the whole nine yards. And this is like a toy parrot. And uh, we have some interesting stories on the Alzheimer's Reading Room website. There was one where a woman who's pretty smart was reluctant to try it, but she finally decided to do it. And she was shocked at the uh, um, reaction she got out of her mother. And her story was particularly funny because they had a dog and when they turned the parrot on and he started repeating, the dog started barking, the parrot started barking, and there was barking all over the place. And uh, her mother found that um, <laughs> particularly delightful. And once again, anytime you get a big smile or laugh out of a person with AD, uh, you tend to feel good. And this kind of goes back to um, something you were saying a little earlier. You go from, if if you can make it to this point, what you've been describing is you go from everything being a burden you know, I'm doing everything, you know, nobody's helping me. And then all of a sudden, it's kind of like you're getting these positive feedbacks from your mother or your or your spouse or whoever it is. And I think we all know when you start to get this positive feedback, you start to feel good about yourself. And then you yeah. start to think positive thoughts. And then finally, and hopefully, instead of your brain just being beaten with the burden of AD and always thinking negative thoughts and receiving negative you start to receive positive, and then your brain starts to rewire. And if that happens, then you're really on, you know, and you know I've written about this, you really get off the path of burden, and you start to get on the path of joy. And like you're saying earlier, these little tiny things become so very, very meaningful in your life. They take on a different shape than they might have when you were so busy working or doing whatever it was you were doing, kind of like living your life. All of a sudden, these tiny little things um, they really do bring a sense of joy to you. Yeah. Well, and I like that you did, the, you know, some videos and stuff and shared. And, and I don't know for you, but for me with my mom, I've got like little music videos. And I mean, she's got tens of thousands of people that have seen these little video clips where she just comes to life, where there is life with this disease and there is joy. And for me, I mean, if I'm ever down or just kind of sad, I just put one of those on and it just, it just, perks me right back up and says, you know, this was a good time. This was a really, it was very simple, but it was, you know, I'm so glad that I was able to capture those moments. So I would really encourage people, you know, to to capture those things. If If it's video, if it's audio, if it's pictures, you know, stop creating, um, you know, a memorial and start creating a living memorial, one that will enhance your memories you know, throughout your life, and we'll be able to share the story. I mean, you know, with my family and my friends and just even people that I talk to, um, you know, it's life-changing. And those little teeny silly things are so important, and they can be the cornerstones to help people find that path of joy. You know, because, again, people don't, you know, if they don't look for for joy, they're not going to find it. And it's such a minute thing. And I said this earlier in the program um, with Susan that, you know, I believe we, we remember three things, what scares us, what saddens us, and what brings us joy. And it's very unconscious, especially when you get first plopped into this whole mode. And, you know, we're looking at all the scary stuff. <laughs> we're looking at all these changes. Um, and, you know, it, it is sad. Um, and we forget to look for the joy because we're so busy doing things. But once we start looking for the joy, you know, listening to the giggles, you know, 
it sounds like for you, for Susan, for myself, um, it was all about creating that joy, seeing that expressed, you know, by them in whatever fashion. If it's a giggle, if it's a smile, if it's a glint in the eye, if, if it's hands clapping, if it's whatever, it you know, that's the goal. And you can just revel in that. It's just a pretty incredible place to be able to be. I am going to try again to pull this caller in because now it looks like they've done something different. So if you are caller with the last numbers of 1954, I don't want to ignore you, so we'll just try again. And if you don't want to talk, that's okay too. So 1945, you are live on the air. If you've got a comment or question, we'd love to, we'd love to hear it. Are you with us? Yes, I am. Okay. And can you say who you are, please? Yes, my name is Rose Lamar. Hi, Rose. Thanks for calling in. What can we help you with, Rose? You're welcome. I'm a little nervous, needless to say. Um, Thank. First of all, uh, tell Bob that we all miss Dottie without a doubt, um, and thank him for all he's done to spread the word. Um, I have a question, though, as far as I'm down living in South Florida again. And I'm concerned that so many people are being told they have Alzheimer's. And if they're told this, and there is no definitive test that will say you have Alzheimer's except after you're dead and may um, cut your brain open and say you have Alzheimer's, how can they say you have Alzheimer's? Bob, do you want to go uh, Do you want me to tackle that one? Sure. Um, Here, I'll let you take that one. Hello, Rose. I heard every word you Hi. said. Thank you. Um, well, um, in my case, or in our case, um, I made sure, uh, and, and this took over 14 months to do this, by the way, uh, only because I couldn't find the right doctors. Um, I made sure that we tried to rule out uh, every possible cause of Dottie's behavior. Um, so, for example, and uh, you, you you understand this, um, you know, was there a problem with her thyroid? Right. Was there a problem with her B12 or her vitamin D? The list goes on and on. Was she having right. mini strokes? Um, and the, the list is just forever. So I made sure she had all kinds of testing um, so that we could rule that out. And at the point where we had an MRI, which at that particular time, back in 2004, really the end of 2004, almost mm-hmm. 2005, um, she did have an MRI, and it showed um, beyond what would be expected for normal aging in her hippocampus. So clearly there was a problem in her brain. Um, right. However, uh if you're really very thorough, although this is starting to change right now with biomarkers and some other things that are in PET scans and, and better tests that are available. So, yeah, the answer to your question is um, the diagnosis for my mother was probable Alzheimer's because, as you can't know um, right. for sure without an autopsy. So the critical point I'm trying to make is you really have to make sure you have a neurologist or a geriatric doctor who's going to really dig and dig and dig to first rule out all the other possible causes that can make you 
seem like you have a memory problem because a lot of things like um, like the thyroid, for example, you can get a pill, uh, and if it works for you, then you know these memory problems can go away. Poof, and that does happen. Uh, and I know specific examples where that happened. A lot of there are examples of MPH where long, long after a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, somebody finally got the test uh, and they came back. Um, because that can be fixed uh, in, right. in the ma majority of cases. Now, I was asked quite a bit why I did not get Dottie's brain autopsy. Yeah. And the reason for this is simple and straightforward. I saw what I saw with my own eyes, and it would not have made any difference to me if it turned out that Dottie had a mixed dementia uh, or something different than Alzheimer's, although I don't know what that could have been. Uh, I have friends who do get autopsies, and generally they might find out it's a combination of two dementias, so mm -hmm. a kind of a mixed dementia, or they might find out it's actually vascular dementia. So the only way I can answer your question is, and this is something that really gets, the, gets me upset, because uh, I've talked uh, either in person or in the comments or in emails to over 40,000 Alzheimer's caregivers, and I ask them all the time, did you have a whole series of tests to rule out all the other possible causes? And only a, a fraction of them say yes. A lot of times it's the personal care doctor making the diagnosis. So I say to them, well, if you needed a heart surgery, would you let your personal care doctor give it to you? Uh, I don't think so. I think you'd want a heart surgeon. So um, this is a particular problem, um, but at least where we are today, um, you know, you can first rule everything out, and then you basically just have to use your eyes and your ears. I mean, you'll know um, if there are, you know, problems with thinking, concentration, and behavior. I mean, you can see that. And if there is no way, uh, you know, to do something about it, then certainly it's going to be some type of, um, neurodegenerative disease, and it's probably some type of dementia or Parkinson's. You, you live you live south of me, and, I, and you live in an area of condos. But I'm living in condos again, and I'm seeing a tremendous amount of it. I have to tell you something, Rose. Mm -hmm. um, this is an over 55 community, right? right. Um, and since Dottie was diagnosed. There's 17 people um, that I know in here, so I knew their husband or wife. A lot of them are right. women who actually lived alone. I mean, you you know what it's like in condo living. There's mm -hmm. there's plenty of women and not so many men when you're in uh, that. And uh, I've watched people turn 80 that were really dynamic right. and driving and doing things and involved in social groups. And I've watched them deteriorate right into memory loss. It, it's scary. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it's just crazy. But the odds are about one in three when you're 80 that you could suffer from some type of dementia. They go up to 42 or 50% when you're 85. But the, my observation has been, for whatever reason, as far as aging goes, I mean, you hit 80 and then things start to just happen um, that are so different. And in the case of my mother, when she was 83 or 84, she'd come up to New York. We'd sometimes walk 30 blocks in New York. Now, she was mm -hmm. starting to walk slower, but, I mean, no problem. Um, when she was 
87 when I got here, and I didn't even know it. She had been up for the summer, and I came here in November, um, at least initially. She could not walk one full block. No, I understand it wholeheartedly. I'm going through it right now. I'm dizzy. <laughs> Terribly yeah. dizzy. And by the way, my mother, um, as amazing as she was, she was almost 96 mm-hmm. um, when she died, um, she had no other problem. Uh, heart, know, lungs, kidneys. Um, she wasn't taking any medication, you know, other than blood pressure medication and yeah, cholesterol and then the Alzheimer's um, things. Um, so, in she spite of that, I mean... Up, she brightened up once you got her moving. No doubt about it. Well, um, you know, I, I, I always think back, uh, you know, what was the magic bullet or was there a magic bullet? But, I mean, the basic bottom line... Uh, I think were two things, and I don't think this first one, this is what people always tell me, they say the magic bullet was that I decided to come and take care of her, and I guess that's true, or that Mm -hmm. I decided to do it when I did. Um, But, I mean, the combination of the idea, or the idea that something had to change, and then after that, we're going to live our life. And I decided to try to remember how Dottie lived her life, And that's how we tried to live it. I'm not trying to fool anybody by saying there weren't constraints. Some of them would have been her age anyway. But, I mean, there were things we couldn't do, like take a long trip. If she was just old, we would have taken long trips. But I couldn't go too far away because of dementia, et cetera, uh, or I didn't want to. Um, But So we started living our life. So we started going to the gym, and we started – the bright light is critical for everybody. And this is one thing that's beautiful about Florida. You won't have any trouble getting a high dose of of bright light. It's a little harder if you live in Alaska or or Michigan or Minnesota. Um, But, I mean, the bright light was critical. And then um, the one thing I learned um, that I lucked into is when we went to the banana boat, which Mm -hmm. is kind of an outdoor bar that I had been taking my mother and even my father when he was alive to. You can sit outside and eat. And uh, I couldn't take my mother to restaurants because we'd sit at a table together and she wouldn't talk. And I'd end up with a stomachache. So I decided to sit her up at this bar outside where there's bright light. And you can eat there. So we we started to go um, to eat because I don't really drink much. I drink Mm -hmm. some beer maybe. My mother doesn't really, never really drank. Um, So we'd eat. And then something happened that I could have never expected people started coming up and talking to my mother. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, she had friends. Mm-hmm. And the two best of them, she could remember their name, but she would remember all of the good ones. So over time, she made friends. So the scenario is, here we come, we're walking into the banana boat, we're going up the ramp to the outside bar. People start see us coming. They start screaming, Dottie, come here, come here. They saved a chair for her because that can be a crowded place. And then one by one, they'd come up, they'd give her a hug, they'd talk to her. Uh, and that probably had a lot to do um, with why she did brighten up over time and she started smiling more and becoming more interactive. And I'll tell you what, it did quite a bit of good for me, too, because I became friends with those people also. And I still am. Sure. Mm-hmm. No, I understand that. Put yourself in another's shoes and you do learn a lot. Yeah. No doubt about well- it. Rose, I want thank to thank you. you for calling, and we've got another caller on the line here. Thank you for all you did. Thank you, Rose. Bye-bye. Thanks, Rose. Okay, I've got a caller from the 4352 number, and let's see, you should be live on the air. 
4352 if you can state your name and your question or comments. Hi, Lori. It's Alan Arnett. Hi, Alan. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I just wanted to call in and say hello to Bob and and uh, just three quick things, and I'll just hang up and let you guys keep going. But first off, Bob, I just want to say thanks so much for sharing Dottie with us over this time. You've been um, you've been a um, I think a role model for caregivers, and you've been incredibly unselfish in in bringing the story and, and uh, your journey to us. The second thing is I also want to acknowledge that both Laura, you and Bob, for being a clearinghouse for information. Um, you know, on Alzheimer's and especially the reading room with uh, what you do, Bob, and bringing us the the stories about, you know, the treatments. And even though there's a lot of, uh, you know, quote-unquote no- noise out there in the system, I think you do a nice job of trying to filter that and, and bring only the, um, you know, the most pertinent uh, information through your blog. And then the, the last comment is that, um, you know, Lori, both uh, Susan and Bob and, and yourself, and I've talked about this as well, that the importance of humor as a caregiver uh, in, the, in dealing with the, uh, you know, dealing with the us, as Bob, as you like to say, I think humor is really the secret, and uh, it keeps us all young forever. So with that, I'll, I'll just hang up and just listen. Thanks, guys. Okay. Uh, thanks Alan, for first of all, th- thanks for your kind words, and, and I'll tell you this. Uh, uh, you've made a tremendous accomplishment with your climbing the mountains and raising money. Uh, really spectacular. And I hear that you're a terrific public speaker, and I haven't heard you speak in public yet, um, but I'm sure I will in the not-too-distant future, and I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks for calling in. Okay, Okay, we've got another caller, and we only have a few more minutes left. So this caller is from a 1302-1302. You are live if you can state your name and your comment or question. One three zero two, you're live on the air from a four five two number. If you'd like to make a comment, did they forget to press the one? So did they? Did they forget to press the one so they can uh, we can hear them? Nope, nope, they're here. So they just might be nervous. So okay, well we'll just continue our conversation here. Not a problem. We've got about ten minutes left on the show. Um, Now you have referred Bob to your mom going to the gym, and I just think that that is amazing. That at the age of eighty eight. Dottie started going to the gym. Can you tell us how that came to be and what you found to be the benefits of that? Um, Yes. First of all, that was the first major decision that I made, and that came a result um, of trying to uh, learn about uh, Alzheimer's and dementia on the Internet and doing research, and I kept bumping into articles uh, you know, by following links about how exercise has such a positive effect on the brain and gets oxygen into the brain. And, of course, it's good for all your organs. Um, there wasn't a lot of research specific to dementia patients at that time. This was back in 2003 and 2004. There's quite a bit of information now uh, that talks about the benefits. So I decided that I needed to get her into the gym and as it turned out, it was a great idea because people asked me, how do you do it? Uh, take care of your mother by yourself. And certainly it relieved a lot of stress. And it turned out that I got, at least in the beginning, although this turned around in phenomenal shape. So I decided to take her to the gym. Uh, and what a task that was because um, she would say no, even when I was putting her kids on uh, and tying her shoes. She would say no all the way there. 
sometimes she would curse at me in the car, and she would say, I'm not going in. Even when I opened the door in the car, she'd say, I'm not going in. Um, so at any rate, uh, we would start to go in, and she would walk like a zombie, almost like she was going to fold up and fall like an accordion. And I think that was because she used up so much energy saying no, she was wearing herself out. Now, compare. Uh, l let me just say, uh, I started her out in a class, but shortly thereafter, um, I would put her on the treadmill, and then this was her idea because she jumped on an exercise machine, a real exercise machine one day. She started doing uh, two exercises. So imagine a gym with a chest press machine and a shoulder machine and a leg machine and another exercise I had, stand up, sit down. So she would walk on the treadmill for 22 minutes, not nonstop. She would stop the treadmill. I would start it back up. She would stop it. I would start it back up. And she would do her exercises. She hated the treadmill, and she loved the exercise machines. Go figure, right? You go in a gym, and mostly it's exactly the opposite. So she's no, 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 cursing me out. We go in the gym. We get done. Now she's standing up straight. Her chin is up. She's smiling. She walks right out of the gym all by herself. She's holding my hand on the way in. Um, she gets in the car. We come home. We end up having lunch. And for an hour or two, it was the best part of my day. Of course, it wore off after a while. But I learned some critical things from that decision. The first thing I learned was that she was capable of um, more than I could imagine. She would leg press like 30 pounds 36 times. She's 5 feet tall and 88 at the time. And by wow. the way, she probably could have she probably could have leg pressed 50 or 60 or 70. When she got to 30, I never pushed it up any higher because I was afraid she would get hurt. Same uh, is true on uh, the other machines. So here I am, and I'm I'm I have I'm new caregiver, and all of a sudden, um, she's able to do more than I could imagine. And I'm noticing that her behavior changes from meaner than a junkyard Doberman pincher into like a really nice person, even though it wasn't laughing. So this is what I learned. And this led me to believe uh, very early on that I could find a solution to any problem that we had. And the list was long, and it didn't happen overnight. It happened over years. But over time, the PP problem, the poopy problem, the shower problem, and really the challenging behavior one by one, I found a way uh, to change that, and we actually reached a point after, oh, about a year after we started, or maybe a year and a half ex of the exercise, where we had a daily routine where the day started with her coming to the table and reading from the newspaper, and it ended with her getting in bed uh, and reading a book, and during every 90 minutes of that day, unless we had to go to the doctor or something had come up, we did the same exact thing every day, and um, we solved problems. Uh, we turned both of us into a nicer person, and uh, I'm a big believer in the exercise, and I'm a big believer in it. you need to really have your day patterned out. I think that helps a person with dementia uh, feel a better sense uh, of safety and security. Um, so I'm a big uh, I'm a big proponent of that. And by the way, I didn't let my mother sit around for any long periods of time. I mean, we had music, we went out, we went and got coffee into the bright light. 
I mean, we had specific times of day. We took showers, you know, pretty close. Uh, we even had a specific time when um, my mother ate ice cream, and believe it or not, it was the ice cream that cured one of her worst sundowning problems, and that was oh. by luck, luck, uh-huh. not by design. I stumbled onto that by sheer luck. Well, but again, the the key there, Bob, is that you noticed it made a difference, and then you repeated it. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes, that people don't slow down to notice what's making the difference. Because something so simple as, as having ice cream can make everybody's life so much easier if we just pay attention to, you know, what are the routines and what happens what you know? What happened right before they got upset or got sad? Um, what are those triggers, and what brings them joy? You know, what can get them sidetracked and relished? I know for my mom, I mean, it, it could be music, or it could be aroma, or it could be touch. I mean, there's so many different things that we could do, but we have to pay attention to those little triggers, and then we have to implement them. And by um, staying on the routines, I think, is is huge. It's just an an absolutely massive piece. And I think one of the things that you did um, nicely with caring for your mom, from from what I read, was your routines were really about her comfort. And a lot of times, everyone else in the real world is about what's going to make my life easier. You're going to follow my routine. And you really found that the routines were for your mom's sake and keeping her comfortable. And if she's comfortable and happy, you know, life's going to be easier for you too. And that we can adjust to those routines. They can't. And so, Well, I'm going to tell you what. um, You know, people say, well, that was a lot of hard work. You went out and you did this and that. But you just said another word. In my opinion, making the effort made both of our lives easier. Yep. So, I mean, it's kind of like, again, it's the chicken and the egg. Which came first? I don't know. Uh, I'm never going to figure it out, and I don't really care that much. I only care in the result. Um, I know we're going to get off here a second, and I, I do want to say something, and I hope um, I don't lose myself here when I say it. Okay. Um, We've got two minutes left, so go go for it. Um, well, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to say it. I'm going to do my best here. Um, I learned that a person with Alzheimer's never stops loving you. Mm-hmm. In fact, they love you more. They do. They love you more, and they love you more completely. And I think that's one of the beauties of the disease, because there is no judgment, and they just accept you. And to be able to, again, have that gift of knowing that you are that loved is incredible. And and I thank you so much for sharing all that you have um, in a heartfelt way. And, again, Dottie is, I'm sure, just beaming down with Harvey on her shoulders <laughs> saying, you rock, Bob. You did a great job. You're doing wonderful things. And it was an honor to have you on the show um, for people to reach Bob, you can just go to the Alzheimer's Reading Room. If you Google Alzheimer's Reading Room, um, he will pop up in, in volume. There's no way that you can miss him. Um, I highly encourage you to, to go ahead and follow. 
um, follow the Alzheimer's Reading Room, um, subscribe, you will just get a massive amount of knowledge, um, not only through Bob, but through the community that he's built. Um, in addition, if you've liked the uh, the format today, please like us and tweet us and, and share uh, this uh, this episode, and feel free to go into the archives with others. None of us are on this journey alone. This is not a disease of one. This is a disease of society, and together we can make a difference. We are making a difference. And so I thank you all for, for being part um, of Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I want you all to have a blessed day, and feel free to check us out at www.alzheimerspeaks.com. Thank you. Bye now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire. Become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurpose on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.